Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, we're joined by Dr. Nita Farahani, who is a lawyer and scholar on the ethical, legal, and social implications of emerging technologies, and Dr. Nishida Dekka, who is a co-founder and the CEO of Sonera Magnetics, a company striving to develop technological solutions for neurological disorders. I'm Maya Reitman, an incoming MD, MA, and bioethics and health policy candidate at Loyola University Chicago Stritch School of Medicine, and will be moderating this podcast alongside Cristiano Shotzi, a first-year medical student at Harvard Medical School. Doctors Dekka and Farhani, thank you so much for being here. You both provide unique perspectives that we look forward to exploring. The development and implications of emerging neurotechnologies, not just on patient care, but on society at large, are incredibly important and an urgent topic that neurosurgeons will increasingly face. Thanks, Maya. As you said, there are increasing innovations to treat neuropsychiatric disorders, and there are also increasing important considerations of what an equitable and just access to these innovations might look like, how to best protect individual autonomy and privacy. Um, so Maya and I served as two of eight Dana Planning Grant Next Generation Leaders in a program led by Harvard neurosurgeon Dr. Teresa Williamson and lawyers Dr. Francis Shen and Dr. Gabriel Lazaro Munoz, where as a group we coined the term neurotech justice to encompass the goal and realization of a society in which individuals can ethically and equitably access neurotechnologies, which will require multidisciplinary investment. This podcast discussion was inspired by that work. So to begin, Please tell us more about your role in the neurotechnology space. Specifically, Dr. Dika, can you discuss with us what approach Sonera broadly as a neurotechnology development company utilizes and the approach you specifically take to ensure that Sonera's creations are developed in ethical and equitable manners? Yeah, so I'll go ahead and start by talking a little bit about what we're doing broadly. So our company is developing novel non-invasive sensors for detecting neural activity. So the hope is that we can democratize access to neural data and be able to advance neurotechnology significantly and ideally make a more equitable solution. And to your second question, um, a lot of the work we're doing, we're still kind of very early stages, pre-product. And so a lot of the work that we're doing is internal, much smaller scale. And I think moving forward to make sure that we're sort of handling things appropriately or handling data, especially appropriately, um, kind of imagine that a lot of it's gonna center around a lot of discussion and education um, to kind of understand what frameworks and policies to put in place as we start doing more of this work and doing more testing into the prototype and product phase. And I sort of imagine initially we'll probably do a lot of tightly controlled and monitored work. And as we sort of collect the data, understand what we're actually reading and seeing and what we can do with it, again, kind of implement the right frameworks and policies to be able to continue to handle that data appropriately as we continue testing. No, that's definitely understandable. As a follow-up to your question then, that makes me really curious about what facilitators and barriers you have encountered in the past and what issues you foresee Sonera facing in the future with it. 
Yeah. So again, like so far, everything's been pretty small scale and we're, you know, kind of early stage. So I haven't, I wouldn't say that we've really faced any significant barriers so far. Um, but kind of like going back to what I just said, I think in the future moving forward, we're going to spend a lot of time discussing how to handle the data that we're collecting. So I think there's going to be a lot of discussion around that. Um, I imagine we'll talk to a lot of people kind of in the regulatory space, um, have very tight feedback loops with users, regulators, um, other developers to understand um, how to, again, handle that data appropriately and kind of figure out what to do with it, um, especially given that, you know, for a lot of our work, we're going to want to do a lot of large scale testing, um, especially on a pretty broad set of the population and a diverse set of people. Um, again, I think that's going to be really important to building an equitable solution to kind of understanding how our technique can be applied to a lot of different types of people and what to do with that data. And so I think a lot of conversations in the future, a lot of time and energy is going to be spent towards understanding how to actually collect and handle that data appropriately. So I imagine that's going to be a big part of what we'll do. Thank you so much, Dr. Decker. And sort of building upon that, um, Dr. Farahani works in the legal and ethical space of a lot of the questions that you brought up. And Dr. Farney, Farhani, as you state in your new book, uh, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology, that quote, neurotechnology has unprecedented power to either empower or oppress us. And your work centers on concepts of cognitive liberty and the transformational potential and transformational reality of these technologies um, presently. And can you expand on what the goals are for ensuring the ethical use of neurotechnologies and of some of those same barriers and facilitators to realizing those goals? So um, I think we stand at a very early stage of neurotechnology for widespread consumer and widespread health applications. Um, and it raises a lot of complex questions. I would say, you know, my overall orientation to it is optimistic that if we get it right, it can be transformational for um, mental health, for human flourishing, uh, that the opportunity to actually treat our mental health as seriously as we treat the rest of our physical health by having the tools and the capabilities to do so are incredibly exciting. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, it, it, any kind of technology that is introduced um, without appropriate governance standards or is introduced in the context where the, those who are selling the technology um, are, you know, consumer uh, technology companies who don't have a great history of treating personal privacy in ways that are respecting of individuals or thinking about broader social implications of the introduction and use of those technologies mean that it can have oppressive side effects, right? One of the things that's very challenging about uh, the kind of coming age of brain transparency is that it has this double edge. On the one hand, it can be deeply empowering for individuals when it, the when the technology is in their own hands. On the other hand, when it is misapplied by corporations for commodification of, of data from the brain of um, employers who are trying to use it as another mandatory performance um, metric to track people, or much more frighteningly, when governments use it to try to interfere with freedom of thought, um, then we start to see very dystopian potential for the technology. So, you know, the question that I pose in the book and that I really have focused my work on is, how do we realize that bright and optimistic future where the technology really is um, there to help people to reach our full potential, to have 
wellness um, and mental health be front and center, to have neurological disease and and suffering be something that we could actually bring under control and um, both understand it better, but also develop better treatment options. Um, and you know, I think we stand at a pivotal moment to make those choices to ensure that it goes down that path. Thank you. And sort of orienting this specifically towards neurosurgeons and you know what their role is and in this developing world and this new space. Um, some of the neurosurgeons who are listening to this podcast, they are intimately involved in developing and implementing these novel technologies for clinical trials or they're consulting with companies, um, you know, similar to Dr. Dekas um, for developing these technologies. Uh, and so beginning with Dr. Farahani, what are some of the ethical and legal responsibilities specific to neurosurgeons or specific to principal investigators in these clinical and uh, trials and those types of ethical and legal considerations that they need to have? Um, if you could speak to that. Sure. So, you know, if we're talking about neurosurgeons, we're generally talking about implanted neurotechnology rather than wearable neurotechnology. Um, and the patient population or the clinical trials that we're talking about there are people who already have in some way um, some aspect of their autonomy that has been compromised. And that could be that they no longer have the ability to um, communicate through traditional means of communication, or they no longer have um, full use of uh, their physical body to be able to interact with the rest of their environment. Um, and so the focus for neurosurgeons at that point is really to, to re-enable people to be able to regain independence, regain the ability to communicate, regain the ability to um, operate in their environment. Or, you know, a, a different scenario is a person is suffering from something like severe and intractable depression, um, where, you know, their their life has become quite diminished. Um, and it's about resetting brain activity to enable them to be able to, you know, um, reclaim their will to live, reclaim the uh, typical range of emotions that they might otherwise experience. When you're encountering somebody who already has diminished autonomy, it, it raises complicated questions where what you're doing is intervening in the brain itself. Um, and so fully informed consent in a context like that presents unique challenges. Um, and so, especially since the risks are not just risks to physical risks, for example, rejection um, uh, over time or inflammatory responses to something like uh, neurotechnology, but also risks of you know, privacy of not just the individual, but also those that they live with, those you know, who they interact with, um, where the data that is being captured may be uniquely sensitive data, uniquely personal data. And so making sure that a person has fully informed consent in a context like that, where they have diminished autonomy, I think presents unique concerns for neurosurgeons. Um, it requires really that they um, develop robust consent procedures, ensure that there's comprehension and understanding of the consent that they're entering into. And then um, I believe it requires uh, very rigorous data management policies. And so that's looking at, you know, what data is being collected? What data is being overwritten? Are there filters or you know algorithmic extraction or interpretation of data to limit the collection of you know much more sensitive and personal inner thoughts or feelings or experiences that may be extraneous to and unnecessary for the research protocol or for the clinical study itself? Um, it's putting into place very clear safeguards about 
with whom the data is shared and under what circumstances. Um, and then again, all of that goes into a fully informed consent model to really help to ensure that the patient or the participant has a good understanding, not just of the physical risk, but the social, um, you know, economic, uh, sociological risk, legal risk that they may face as a result of the collection and, um, you know, potential sharing of the brain data that is being collected under those circumstances. So that's, I think, a good starting place for neurosurgeons in particular to be thinking about the unique risks of the space and how to navigate them. Thank you. Yeah. And that's, that goes into, you know, a lot of the points that you make about protecting cognitive liberty and ensuring that there's respect for patients and, and for neurosurgeons too, in, in this, you know, mutual relationship. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll set out, you know, when I talk about cognitive liberty, I describe it as being both a right to, um, and that right to is uh, self-determination over one's brains and mental experiences, which includes a right to access technologies, a right to informational self-access about one's own self. It also is a right from interference with mental privacy and freedom of thought. And understanding that it's both sides, it sort of captures both the positive benefits of neurotechnology to be deeply enabling, to enable a person to, you know, um, re-engage with communication, re-engage with uh, interaction with the rest of their environment, even just have access to what's happening in their own brains versus the interference from, which is safeguarding against the downside risks and potential that they may face as a result of um, neurotechnology and the kind of unique risks that it poses. So we've talked a lot about some of the harms, the downsides, the risks of neurotechnology. And this really begs the question um, that I want to pose to Dr. Dika specifically, like, what are your thoughts about the obligations of neurotechnology companies, if any, you know, to repair harms caused by one, either inequitable access to neurotechnologies in the past and in the present, um, and two, to any inappropriate administrations of neurotechnologies? Like, who are other important entities, if any, that you view have this sort of, like, potentially a shared responsibility um, for contributing to repairing the harms that patients and communities at large have really faced due to a lot of these improper uses of um, neurotechnologies and inequitable access to them? Yeah, okay, so I'll start with uh, sort of, like, what is important, I think, for neurotechnology companies to focus on, especially like technologists and leaders in the space. Um, and something that I think about a lot, it's focusing on actually building equitable solutions. So if you kind of look at the state of neurotech today, it's really not accessible to a large subset of the population, especially not to a diverse set of the population. Um, so a lot of like the best neurotech today is very expensive. It's hard to access. Or if you look at a lot of consumer grade neurotech, it may be more accessible. Um, but when it comes to physiological differences, it doesn't work well for a wide set of people, whether it's due to hair or skin color or weight, things like that. Those factors really matter. Um, and I think in a lot of like biosensor and health sensors today, we've seen a lot of studies now showing that on a diverse set of people, it doesn't actually work very well. It works very well for this large, very small homogenous set that has been tested on. And so I think it's important for a lot of innovation in neurotech to focus on how do we actually build equitable solutions. So that means something that can actually work across a broad, diverse array of people and kind of promoting and supporting those solutions. And I think um, kind of the second half, the second answer, the answer to your second question um, is, you know, in order to 
make this actually work in order to innovate appropriately in the space, I think it involves kind of the entire ecosystem, like folks like Nita um, and other people who are experts kind of in the space and understanding how to actually handle the data and manage the data and what frameworks and policies to put in place, um, being very involved with neurotechnology companies and making sure that, you know, A, we're focusing on building the right solutions and then we're handling those solutions appropriately, deploying them correctly, testing them correctly. Um, and so I think all of that is kind of the whole, whole ecosystem is responsible for promoting the right solutions and delivering them in the right way. No, that makes a lot of sense. And there, there can often be such barriers as well to ensuring that, you know, groups who are multidisciplinary in thought and action can come to the table at the right times, at the right moments to really encourage a lot of new thought and innovation, et cetera. Um, and this makes me curious, like with such a thin line between, you know, innovation and often like harm um, that can come from these benefits that we can reap from new technologies. Like how do we encourage innovation and exploration for the sake of like preserving human life, like meeting the needs of a diverse population while also ensuring that we don't cross the line of developing harmful technology um, in both application and even just um, like by what these technologies do. And I will pose that question first to Dr. Farahani. So I often think of technology itself as not being the problem, um, but the application and misuse of technology being the problem. Now, that being said, I think the design of technology matters quite a bit. And thinking about um, privacy by design principles or uh, you know, thinking about ways that the design, you know, whether it's data sets that are used to train and, you know, develop the technology, the thresholds that are used or the calibration for individuals, um, but also uh, the, you know, thinking about the human-centered implications of the technology and its application. So for example, you know, if you have neurotechnology that is collecting data, are there ways to have an on-off switch during sensitive times of the collection of data or overwriting of data or transparency into the data? If you have wearable rather than implanted technology and it's multifunctional, so you can use it to listen to music, but it's also um, something that uh, is capturing brainwave activity at the same time. Is there a possibility of being able to listen to music and turn off the switch that is collecting or commodifying the data at the same time so that with multifunctional um, use devices that it isn't passively always collecting data? Um, so I think that's that's part of it. Um, you know, as for like, are there some technologies that should not be developed at all within the neurotechnology space itself? Um, you know, I think, where I would go is really technologies that are designed to do harm. So when technologies are intentionally designed to disable or to disorient or to harm people, um, I think that's where we shouldn't go with it. That's usually not the case though, right? Other than the weaponization of technology, it's the misuse and misapplication by bad actors or you know, by people who take well-intentioned technology with good purposes um, and then misapply it. Uh, so if you know you can use neurotechnology as a write and not just a read device, which many of them have, using it to write in harmful ways or using it in contexts that are inappropriate. Um, so I think it's more about looking, you know, are there things that you can do to make it as 
you know, autonomy enhancing, as cognitive liberty enhancing as possible upfront? And then are there things that you can do to safeguard against the misapplication and misuse of the technology at the other end? And I'll, I'll add a little bit to what Nita said. Um, I think this is also where like the early testing becomes really important and having a lot of communication um, amongst different groups about what the data is actually telling us. Um, because there's a kind of a large question, especially with new technologies, around what we're actually reading, what we're seeing, what information is contained in those data sets. And so again, like tightly controlled and monitored testing in the early stages, and a lot of it, I think, will help inform the right ways to then use that data, what applications it's good for, um, and then again, how to safeguard against misuse of those mis misuse of those data sets. And so um, kind of keep going back to this idea of like, a lot of testing in the early stages to really understand what we're looking at and then make the right decisions based on what we've learned and what insights we gain from that testing. It sounds like, you know, what I've heard from the last few discussions has been, you know, sort of trying to approach neurotechnology development from this equity-based perspective where it's not an afterthought, but it's more undergirding and a foundation of all that is done and to create um, technologies that are innovative and truly beneficial in the future in both in its application. And that really makes me think about similarly, like um, just the shift and increasing focus on um, health disparities in medicine and this reality of a lot of the um, barriers to care that patients face, et cetera, and the reality that it's not an afterthought, but that from the very first day before you even enter medical school um, as a physician, that you are learning about these things and applying that to your daily care. Um, this really begs the question too. So starting with both Dr. Dika, first Dr. Dika and then Dr. Farahini, how can experts on issues of neuroethics and neurotechnology development um, sort of connect with patients um, and or the everyday individual who stands to be affected by like these neurotechnological innovations that sort of create this environment for a battle of our brain? Um, how can we connect with them so that they're able to make free and informed decisions as a lot of these neurotechnologies become available um, as treatment options? I think Nita is probably the better person to answer this question since it seems a little bit more clinical focused. Um, you know, so I think in general, one of the problems we have is the integration of neuroethics and clinical care, the integration of ethics more generally into practice. Um, I love hearing that Maya is getting uh, um, MDMA and bioethics as well, because I think the more... Uh, it's aligns and integral rather than separate and additional. Um, the more it becomes a culture of care and a culture of the approach and a culture of the way in which we think about neurotechnologies or neuroscience or, you know, we think of good medicine and good science as being um, responsible medicine and responsible science, that they're synonymous, that it's not, you know, uh, uh, an additional checkbox and additional consideration. It is just core to the consideration itself. Um, and so that's how I think we can best think about the integration of neuroethics into clinical care and into really any space, technological development, technological care. Um, you know, all of it should, we need to find a way to start from the ground up. Um, you see, for example, a lot of the major tech companies um, as they've been doing round after round of layoff, that one of the first teams that are laid off are the responsible innovation teams or the ethics teams, which is to say that they're not well integrated, right? It's not a mandate from the top. It is a, 
um, you know, kind of nice to have as opposed to core to the mission itself. Um, and so I think the more we can find ways to both train physicians and to train clinicians and to train scientists and technologists and all of society to have, you know, human-centered values be core to um, what we do, right? To have justice and equity and um, privacy and, and liberty be foundational to the very practice of each of these fields, the easier it is. We don't have to worry about layoffs of those particular people because that would require laying everybody off because it would just simply be part and parcel of what we do. Thank you for that, Dr. Farhani. And I guess uh, for Dr. Decca, um, you know, what do you hope that the end user of your products would know about your products, would be informed of? How do you, as a company, seek to inform those end users? Yeah, I think really like our hope with a lot of the work we're doing is to allow people to take more control of their own health and their well-being. I think that's ultimately the goal here. Um, like I think a lot about how, you know, we can measure things like heart rate and temperature and blood pressure very easily, but we can't measure things like brain activity easily at all. And so that kind of begs the question, you know, what if we could do that and then build, you know, much more customized treatments for patients for mental health disorders? Or what if we could identify new types of biomarkers for neurodegenerative disorders for things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's? So all of that is really exciting to me. And I think, you know, ultimately our hope is that the end user receives that kind of information and is able to improve eventually the health and well-being of their, of their lives by having that information in a controlled way. Thank you. And, and it sounds like really there is a call for greater integration of everyone, you know, having these multidisciplinary conversations, really bringing that to the forefront. Um, and there's so much more that we'd love to delve into with both of you. Um, but at this time, we'll, we'll need to wrap up our conversation. And we had, we're very grateful for this enriching opportunity to learn more about both of you, your work and your perspectives um, on justice and neurotechnology. And before we end, uh, where can listeners go to learn more about your work? Um, and Dr. Decca, let's start with you and then we'll wrap up with Dr. Farhani. Yeah, so we've actually been fairly under the radar for the last several years. We've been working a lot of our, on our technology development, um, but I will be making some announcements this summer about our work. So I'm excited about that. Um, and you can find that on our website and our social media accounts. So that'll be happening sometime this summer. And people can go to my website, nitafarahani.com, um, where they can uh, either sign up for my Substack and keep up with what I'm up to, um, learn more about my book, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology, or follow me on Twitter for regular updates about what I'm up to and how I'm thinking about this space. Awesome. Thank you both, Dr. Farahani and Dr. Tika. It's been wonderful to spend this time with you. So Maya and I will sign off and thank you all for joining us.